Church, Jarrett Stevens here, one of your lead pastors. And you know, with this month, our families take a little time away to rest and to recover and to be together. But while we're gone, we wanted to bring you some of the best possible voices that we could to speak into our church and to speak into your life. And today, I am so excited to welcome my friend Sarah Bessie to Soul City Church. Now, I say friend, and what I really mean is I'm just a huge fan of hers. I've been following her writing for years now. She is one of the most honest and beautiful and powerful and poignant writers that I've ever read. And it is a privilege for us to have her here today. Her most recent book is called Out of Sorts, and it is a really honest wrestling with what it means to have a real relationship with God. I think you are going to love having Sarah with us today. So can you do me a favor? Can you give Sarah a huge Soul City Church welcome? Can you all just start clapping and letting her know how much we love her and how glad we are that she's here? Let's welcome Sarah Bessie. Oh, that's, let's not be silly. Okay, Jesus. Oh, there's a lot of people here, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, take the wheel. Uh, oh, we love you. We long to know you and to walk with you and to be changed by you. And we trust you. Jesus, help me get out of the way. Amen. All right. Hi, everybody. Nice to see you. I'm Sarah. <laughs> oh, well, you know, it was, I was telling the earlier services, oftentimes before I come uh, to a church, I will uh, call the pastors, and I had a chance to speak with one of your lead pastors, with Jarrett, and um, inevitably, when I have these conversations, my heart is to say, you know, tell me about your community, tell me what everybody's like, tell me, you know, is there anything that you're particularly hopeful about? And inevitably, you know, a pastor will say, we have some, we have some things we need you to, like, do. <laughs> we need to <laughs> and inevitably, there's, there's some sense of, like, we need this straightened out, and we need you to speak some truth into that. And you know what? I'm here for it. That's fine. I, I, I don't mind that. But I was just so struck by um, what Jared, how he loved you. And how when I asked him, is there anything that you need me to speak into? He just said, I just love my people. And I'm so excited. It was almost like he was just excited to, uh, for me to get a chance to meet you, to see you. He was just so proud of you and he just loved you so much. And I was just so incredibly struck by his joy of speaking about his congregation because sadly that isn't something that you hear sometimes, right? He deeply, deeply loves and brags on every single person in this room. And so that was incredibly refreshing for me and it made me really excited about coming um, here to Soul City. So I've been getting to know everyone and by the time I was kind of finished going through and, and, and getting to know the church a little bit better, I said to my husband, I was like, so how do you feel about Chicago? <laughs> and he was like, let's see how the election turns out first. <laughs> I said, that's fair. That's totally legitimately fair. And you're not all going to get me in trouble, so I'm just going to stop there. <laughs> I get in trouble enough as it is. <laughs> So for those of you who don't know, uh, I live in a small city just outside of Vancouver called Abbotsford. Uh, I live there. My mom and dad live about five minutes away from me. My sister lives just down the hill from them um, with her husband and, and her children. My little nieces call me Auntie Mama. And so we're just raising these packs of children all together who don't know really the difference between siblings and cousins. 
Uh, I have four children. My first three we had in four and a half years. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much how it felt. <laughs> so, <laughs> just so you're clear. <laughs> so my eldest is, is actually turning 10 next week. Um, and I probably should stop calling them the tinies because she's already five foot two. I, my husband is uh, from Nebraska, and there's, there's truth in the myth of the corn-fed Nebraskans. They, they are tall. <laughs> my husband, just for those of you who don't know, is, he's six foot six. So my children are all just going to be taller than me by the time they're 12. I'll just be the, the runt of the litter. And so uh, we have, have those three, and then about a year ago, um, we welcomed just a, a surprise gift to our family, uh, another little baby girl. Um, if I would have known how wonderful it is to bring home a baby to big kids, I pro it probably wouldn't have been a surprise, because it has just been amazing. Her name is Maggie. My children call her Princess Margaret because she's usually just holding court in the house at all times. <laughs> I don't think she really sits on the floor very much, and so she's just pretty much the center of, uh, of uh, the house right now, and I'm sure we're just preparing her beautifully for life. <laughs> so I drive a minivan. I love my minivan. Love my minivan. I have zero hate for my minivan. I love my minivan. Um, I grew up in the charismatic church. Um, that's kind of like a, a stream of Pentecostalism. And, uh, but I, my big part of my journey has been realizing that the story of God is so much bigger and wider and wilder and more inclusive than we ever could imagine. And so I have learned and received so much life from traditions and people who were very different from me. Um, there's nothing quite as freeing as learning that your tribe isn't the only tribe. Right, that God is active and moving way beyond our, our borders or the, the small boundaries that we create for God, uh, the boxes that we create. Uh, having the doors blown off of that will be one of the scariest things and one of the best things that will ever happen to you. So a few years ago, uh, I'm a writer. Just, I don't know if I mentioned that. <laughs> so I wrote a book a couple of years ago uh, called Jesus Feminist. And I think I might be the only person who's managed to tick off almost everybody with like one two-word title. <laughs> so I win. Yay. That's good. <laughs> but that book for me was never really a book about, um, you know, Christian academic feminist theory, although that's, you know, really important. For me, it was always an, and still remains a book about the kingdom of God and about what life looks like when we are all walking in that freedom and that wholeness, uh, what it means, uh, a glimpse even of what life looks like on the other side of settling a lot of those missing the point gender debates uh, and what God has for us in the kingdom of God on the other side of that. And then just uh, last November, uh, I wrote another book. Uh, it came out. Uh, there's, don't ever take advice about balance and work-life balance from me because I was pregnant with a surprise fourth baby and decided that was a great time to try to write a book. Uh, and then we upsticked and moved to a new house on top of all of it. And so it was a bit of a disaster, and I feel like that book almost has like that sense of rawness or vulnerability or lack of polish um, to it that I really love. I think at my heart of hearts, I was really writing the book I wished I would have had 10 years ago. Um, when I was questioning everything, when I didn't know what my foundations were, when I didn't know what I believed about church or scripture or community or faith or justice or any of these things, and yet was so desperate to hear about the love of God, so desperate to know that um, changing in response to the unchanging Christ is actually a really good and healthy thing, that that is a normal and good and healthy thing. And so that book went out into the world last year. Uh, since then, I've been, um, you know, teaching and preaching these last few years, which always feels a little bit weird for me. I feel like a writer at my core, so I write everything I'm going to say to you people. 
The spirit can move while I'm preparing. That's, that's my J self, <laughs> if you're into the Myers-Briggs stuff. <laughs> so just to make myself a little bit more comfortable, perhaps I thought I'd start off by telling um, a story about how I, and, and why I'm wanting to preach the message that I'm going to preach for you this morning. Um, a lot of it may be difficult for some people here in this room to hear, and I want you to know that I see you, and it's not my heart to further wound you or to poke around things that are still healing. Um, but this is deeply formative and important for me, and so I just want to let you know that I see you, and it's not at all my intention to, to cause greater wounds to you. So about 12 years ago, my husband and I were on staff at um, a large church in Texas. Um, we want to talk about culture shock, talk about a Canadian girl landing in, in Texas. Did you know people like actually have guns? <laughs> I didn't know these things. <laughs> I mean, our military is like two canoes and a slingshot, so it's like, <laughs> this is craziness. And so, you know, we landed in Texas. My husband and I were working there for several years. He was the one on staff. You know, it's a two-for-one deal. And um, at the time, our church was going through a tremendous amount of upheaval. Uh, the details aren't terribly important. It'll just suffice to say there was a lot of betrayal. Things that had been hidden came to the light. And as always, when there are secrets, um, it can be very devastating when those things begin to come into light. And we were all brokenhearted and angry and trying to figure out the path forward and nobody could agree on the path forward and trying to care for our people and for ourselves. All in the midst of all of this, I don't know that we always did a really great job, to be honest. And so as we're walking through all of this and I'm devastated and we are questioning and we're trying to figure a path forward, um, in the midst of all that, we discovered that we were expecting a baby. And so the part of my story that I didn't tell you earlier when I was talking about my four beautiful children whom I love and cherish is that I've actually been pregnant eight times um, and we have lost four children as well. Two very early in pregnancies, two not so early. Um, and so that's a big part of our, our, our story and, and how we have come to understand and encounter God and, and, and begin to reconcile that grief and hope often need to be held together. And so when I found out we were expecting this baby, I just had this lift in my spirit of thinking, well, this is it. This is like a gift from God. This is like a kiss from heaven in the midst of all this despair and darkness and, and, and brokenness. Look, new life and hope and everything that that represents and means. And finally, this is coming to pass for us. And uh, at the time, my husband and I were preparing to take a group of 25 teenagers uh, to Germany on a mission trip because that seemed completely reasonable. <laughs> and we were still in the process of preparing for that. And, and just a, a wee bit before we were supposed to leave, uh, I went in just for a quick ultrasound appointment because with you know, any woman who's been in my history knows that they like to keep a close eye on you. And so I went in for my usual appointment and the ultrasound tech, I remember her doing her check and then just flicking the screen off and just really matter-of-factly, not even meeting my eyes, saying, oh, well, this baby is dead. And so we're going to have to book you in to get take this one taken care of now. And I went home that night to my husband, and I remember that we, uh, we laid on the floor on our backs just watching the ceiling fan go up above our heads in this empty bungalow that would never see children. And I don't know if you guys have ever laid on your back when you're crying really hard, but you get like all those tears in your ears, and they just kind of pull there, and you feel like you're swimming underwater. And so we were there, and we were weeping, and we were seeking God, and we were trying to figure out what to do. And, and this is another part of my journey, is that, you know, we kept secrets. Um, we didn't tell people when we were... I thought secrets made me stronger. I didn't understand that I needed community, that I needed people to walk that path with me, and so I further isolated myself in times of great grief and suffering. So we didn't tell anybody, and I remember saying to my husband, you know what? 
I want to believe for this one. I want to believe that God can do miracles. I want to believe in life. I've had enough grief and enough brokenness, and I'm ready for a win. And so, as I said earlier, I am a J on the Myers-Briggs, and so I was like, now it's time for some, a plan. And so he was like, okay. And so I didn't make the appointment, um, you know, just to make sure that the pregnancy would end easily and well. I've done that before, and I don't hold any judgment on anyone who made a different choice, but it's just, in that moment, I didn't want to be the one to say, it's done. And so we began to prepare to leave with everyone, but meanwhile, I've got my Bible open and I'm pulling out every scripture verse I can find about healing and about life and about children and promises of God, and I'm writing them on index cards and I'm putting them up in my washroom and in my, um, my mirrors and in my kitchen and in my cubicle at my job, and you know, I'm no more listening to Radiohead, only Jesus music, like that's it, <laughs> nothing else. Because we gotta like speak life here. <laughs> and so anything that anyone had ever told me had worked for them seeing the results that they knew they wanted from God. I was like, great, I'm on it. I'm a doer. I can get this thing done. And so we're walking all this out and battling it the whole time. And so then we packed up all these kids, you know, because their parents distrusted us, which blessed them. And we took them all to Germany to do a mission trip um, you know, and the wonderful thing about teenagers that I really came to cherish over those two weeks is that they didn't care. They didn't really care what was going on in our lives. And they administered that gift of not caring many, many times and just kept up with whatever was going on. And uh, my husband's job was, of course, you know, more leading the more visible ministry staff of, you know, preaching in the streets. And we had dance teams and mime teams and all the things that we think we should do when we're telling people about Jesus. Um, don't get me in trouble. <laughs> And my job was primarily helping to, you know, look after the kids. And of course, that usually, for me, translates into busting them when they're not uh, behaving properly. There's, like, there's zero way to get around me because I was the kid making out behind buildings. And so I will totally bust you behind that building. <laughs> I know, mama, don't play. I 100% know how this game works. <laughs> and so as this was going on, the thing that not a lot of people realize is that when you're having a miscarriage, it can take a long time. And so the whole time we were there, we were preaching and we were teaching, we were corralling, we are ministering and we are doing all this stuff and the whole time there's like a heartbeat, I'm losing this baby. I'm losing this baby every day. It becomes more and more clear that we are not getting our miracle, that this is not happening, that I'm losing this baby. And I remember on one of our last days there, I was standing in the street in this city in Western Germany and I remember just standing there and people were rushing past me and going by and it was just like, I just felt so incredibly invisible. And I began to, and, and, and the, all the illusions, everything I had thought about how it should be and how God should act and how it should turn out were just gone, like steam on a mirror. And I remember just this rock dropping into my heart that, yeah, you have forgotten me. You have forgotten me. You do not see me. And you have forgotten me. And we went home and that rock was still in my chest and that was the refrain in my heart. And two days later, my husband and I delivered that baby in our living room, wrapped her in a tea towel and buried her in our garden. And that following Sunday, we had to go to church because that's what pastors do. And so we go to church and I'm just brokenhearted, grief-stricken, questioning, feeling misunderstood and I don't understand what's even happened. And I'm sitting in about the third row, so already I'm in trouble because I'm not in the front row. And I was sitting in the 
third row and I saw this woman who had been a pastor at the church before my husband and I came on staff. So everybody in the church knew and loved her very, very well. We knew her, she knew us, but we didn't know her terribly well. Um, and the whole time we're in church and everybody's, you know, singing all their, um, you know, victory and overcomer and, um, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend songs, which don't get me wrong, like those are my jam. Like I love those songs <laughs> in my whole heart. I can't sing them. I can't say those words. And so I'm sitting there in church while all this is happening and I'm watching this woman and she's watching me, like intently watching me. And in my heart I'm thinking, she's judging me. She's judging me. She's just like all the others. She's looking at me and she is judging me for not performing the way that a pastor's wife is supposed to perform on Sunday mornings. God forgive me. And at the end of that service, she came over to me sitting there and she crouched down right below me and she took my hands and she said, Sarah, I've been watching you for this entire service and right from the time I saw you, the Holy Spirit just dropped a word from God for me, for you in my heart. And I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but that can go like one of two ways. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> let's hear it. And she says, Right as soon as I saw you in this entire service, the word that the Holy Spirit has given for me, these exact words, she said, you are not forgotten. You are not forgotten. You have never been forgotten. You are not invisible. You are seen and you are loved and you are not forgotten. And she pulls out her Bible and she read without even knowing what was going on. She read Isaiah 49 verse 15 that says, can a mother forget the infant at her breast and walk away from the baby she bore? But even if mothers forget, and for those of you who perhaps have a mother who has forgotten, hear those words. But even if mothers forget, I'd never forget you, never. Look, I've written your names on the backs of my hands. This was a turning point for me, not because all of a sudden all the sorrow and the grief was gone and I suddenly figured everything out, but it was the point where I began to understand who Jesus is. And I still had a lot of things to figure out about miracles and prayer and life and whatever else. And I'm not trying to say I have all the answers figured out. I feel like I'm getting closer maybe some days. But at the core of it and at the heart of it, and so the, the reason why I'm wanting to share the message I want to share with you this morning is that more than anything else that I want you to hear from anything that I've ever said, anything I've ever written, anything you ever hear me say, I want you to understand that at the core is this story of me knowing this and wanting to tell you to hold your hands in front of me and say, you are not forgotten. You are not forgotten. That our good and gracious God sees you. You are not invisible and you are not forgotten. No matter how alone you feel, no matter how broken you feel, no matter how damaged or how good you are at hiding the damage, no matter how bored or tired or exhausted or what a good little soldier you are, you are so loved, and you are not forgotten. Because the thing is, is that I honestly and truly believe that in order for us to move with God, to rescue and restore and redeem the world, in order for us to fully participate in who we were always meant to be in the kingdom of God, we have got to know who we are first, right? Our behavior has to follow what we believe about those things. We oftentimes are living out of our identity, right? We're living out of who we think we are. And so I, I believe it, if we live in this world that is really desperate for a glimpse of God. I mean, honestly, you just turn on the news and the world just feels like a burning dumpster fire right now. And our hearts are broken, right? 
and we feel the, um, the effects of evil and, and war and poverty and racism and things that are systemic and evil. And at the same time, we are also feeling things like lonely and forgotten and unloved and bitter. And I think that as the church, as this church, we are part of God's plan to push back the darkness, right? That we are part of that plan to care for the poor and to minister life and hope and healing and goodness in the name of Jesus Christ. But the thing is, is that we're not after behavior modification in this, right? There's no part of, of Jesus that's like, you know, behavior modification driven. It's all about transformation. It's not that you are being loving that you are, or that you are acting loving or performing the acts of love. It's that you are actually a person who loves, right? There's no faking it. There's no performing for it. And so for me, that's why I always begin and end with Jesus. This is probably something I should have warned you about. I really love Jesus. Jesus has, this is my testimony really. That's a word we don't hear too often anymore, I know, but Jesus has saved me and set me free and healed me in places I didn't even know where I was broken. Jesus has renewed and resurrected and restored me, has messed with me relentlessly in all the best ways. And so that's why I think a lot of this conversation when people want to know why are they loved, how can you speak with such certainty that you are not forgotten, that you are deeply loved by God. It's because of Jesus. It is because of Jesus. It's not just some ethereal thing that I'm pulling out of you know, thin air to try to make us all feel better about life as we're trying to get through from one end to the other end. My friend Brian Zond always says, Jesus is what God has to say. If you are wondering what God is really like, look at Jesus, study the life of Jesus, get to know who Jesus is, because that's what this is. This isn't about you performing and acting like a good Christian. This is about you being a disciple and walking and following and knowing in friendship with Jesus Christ, right? And so I think that that's one of the things I loved most about this moment is it really catapulted me into realizing that Jesus came almost to show us what God is really like. Like Hebrews says that. Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. But also even to pull the curtain back on all the ways we've misunderstood and misrepresented and mischaracterized God. Right? And what did we learn from Jesus? It's that we are loved. It's that we are loved. That you are worthy of a rescue. That you are the sick who needs a physician, that you are the one in the 99 worth coming back to save, that you are whole and redeemed and chosen and loved, that you can engage in your life from a place of love because you are. And I know that oftentimes we can believe that we are only loved if, because that's oftentimes how our relationships work, right? That's how, whether it's our parents, our teachers, our boss or whatever, you're loved if. There is no if with Jesus Christ. There is no if to how deeply loved you are because of Jesus Christ. If you turn over to 1 John chapter four, this is one of my favorite passages of scripture. I say that about all of them, but I mean it this time. In verse nine, it says, this is how God showed his love for us. God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. This is the kind of love we're talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage they've done to our relationship with God. If we jump down to verse 13, this is how we know we're living steadily and deeply in him and he in us. He's given us life from his life, from his very own spirit. And in verse 17, God is love. When we take up permanent residence in a life of love, don't you love that? Permanent residence in a life of love. I feel like somebody needs to cross-stitch that on a pillow. <laughs> we live in God, and God lives in us. This way, love has the run of the house. And I don't know about you, but I long for love to have the run of my house. Becomes at home and mature in us, so that we're free of worry on judgment day. Our standing in the world is identical with Christ. We, though, are going to love. Love and be loved. First we were loved, now we love. He loved us first, there's the gospel. First we were loved, and now we love. The thing is, God is inviting you to a banquet table, and to communion, and to life in the vine, and into community, not to a religious treadmill, or a life of conformity to someone else's best case scenario for your life, that until you finally measure up, to your standard that they think there should be for you, that instead you have not been called to a people-pleasing life or to an approval-seeking life or to a sit-down-and-shut-up life or even a bow-down-and-give-up life, that instead you have been called to the spirit-filled, God-breathed, peace-making, truth-telling, she who the sun sets free is free indeed, life and life more abundant sort of life. That's the life that we have been called to. I love what you guys say here about baptism. By the way, I've never yet made it through a baptism service without weeping. So just even seeing the pictures of your baptism, I was like, oh, Jesus. I love that phrase. This is what transformation looks like in public. Right? N.T. Wright calls that being a parable of hope. Don't you love that? That your life would be a parable of hope, a parable of love, a parable of, of that spirit of God. I think that we've been called to the life of the beloved and the life of the disciple, and then we can live out our lives and our callings or our challenges, our sorrows, our griefs, our victories, all these things that are happening. You're living out of the knowledge in a deep well of love and freedom and wholeness because you are, right? Maybe even especially in the midst of very imperfect, contradictory, sometimes feeling very messed up, I don't know what I'm doing sort of a life, right? That we are so incredibly loved that we are a company of the redeemed and we are a foretaste of what life in the kingdom of God looks like, that we were meant to be a glorious symphony instead of a pack of disjointed, dislocated soloists who are working really hard to earn what they already have, right? So if we make our identity in Christ our starting point, wherever our life may take us, right, regardless of whether our choices or our role or a story Regardless of the season of your life and your failures and your imperfections, I honestly believe that if you make living like you are loved the radical discipline of your life, you will see transformation. You can fill your mind and your heart with the truth of Jesus Christ and the goodness of the freedom that he offers you. If you turn over to Ephesians chapter three, this is, well, this is one of my favorites too. This is Paul speaking. He's written a letter to the church in Ephesus. And he says, and I ask him, who's Jesus, that with both feet planted firmly on love, don't you love the image of that? Both feet 
planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. You can reach out and experience the breadth. You can test its length, plumb the depths, rise to the heights, and live full lives, full in the fullness of God. Now, I want to tell you a quick story about my son, Joseph. And don't worry, I'm not one of those preachers who like tells stories about their kids without asking permission, so it's all good. <laughs> I've asked. My son was in a Bible class and his teacher often uses art to teach them or to you know, kind of help with discipleship. And so she'd ask the kids to draw a picture of what prayer looks like. And so most of the kids, I think like most of us, you know, drew pictures of things like you know, the pastor at church praying over the congregation or sitting around the table at dinner time um, you know, praying over his supper. Um, or their mom or dad praying for them at uh, bedtime when they were getting tucked in. Uh, a few of the kids drew pictures of things they wanted in case it counted. Um, you've got to give it a shot. But his teacher called me in and she kind of slid that piece of paper across the table to me. She says, you need to look at this. Now, what would be you, but just as an aside, isn't it wonderful when other adults come alongside your children and love them and teach them about Jesus? It's so good. And so she slid this piece of paper over to me and I turned it around and looked at it and Joe had drawn a picture of our back deck. Um, just there, all of our trees were there. There was the sun shining in the corner so it was a rare day in Vancouver. Um, a little spiky sun bits coming out. And he had drawn a picture of Jesus sitting in the red chair and it was Jesus just like how almost every kid's storybook Bible depicts Jesus, right? A white robe and a blue sash and you know, dark brown hair and dark brown eyes. I was just excited it wasn't a blonde Jesus. And so there's a picture of Jesus sitting in that chair and then beside him, Joseph had drawn himself with his little black glasses and his sticky up hair and his Nebraska Cornhuskers jersey. And they were holding hands and he had those little cartoon bubbles, you know, like when people are talking to each other in a comic book. And so the very first one said was Jesus. And he says, I love you, Joseph. And Joseph said, I love you, Jesus. And he said, I love you, Joseph. And I love you, Jesus. And this just continued down the page. And he had titled it, Joseph and Jesus, This is How We Pray. And I honestly still feel like in one picture, my seven-year-old son probably taught me more about prayer and what it means to abide in the presence of God than almost any huge theology book I'd ever read or acronym someone had taught me very well-meaning of just learning what it is to sit with Jesus and to experience and encounter the love of Christ. And so that brought up something in me of just wondering if you were sitting on my back deck or on your back deck or in your apartment or wherever else at the park and you were sitting with Jesus, isn't it just so beautiful that probably the first words that you'd hear would be, I love you, I love you. And then even our response is not what my response often is when I hear about the love of God, which is I'll do better, I'll try harder, here's, here's the spreadsheet of all the things I've done and here's the checks and balances of here's all the things I've done right and here's all the things I do wrong and I'll do better next time because you know what, God is not Scrooge McDuck. But instead the response is, I love you, Jesus. And I love you, and I love you, and I love you. Because here's the thing. You do not have to be productive and you do not have to change the world. You're already so loved, all right? You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be someone who sees things always in black and white. You don't have to read all the right books by all the right people, even mine. 
You don't have to be beautiful and thin with any articulated and ironic sense of fashion. Hallelujah. (laughs) But if you're into that kind of thing, that's okay too. Right? You don't have to be healthy in your mind or in your body. You can... You don't have to be in full-time vocational ministry. I know a lot of times we think Jesus loves missionaries and pastors better than the rest of us. That's not true. You don't have to um, only never watch television. Or you could be someone who watches a lot of terrible television, like The Bachelor. You know, you you can't. We'll all judge you for it, but you totally can't. It's not like like a redeemed television show like Doctor Who. (laughs) You could be someone who is artistic or someone who's scientific and logical and rational. You could spend your life traveling to meet beautiful people in places you'd only ever read about in books. Or you can be someone who lives and dies in the town where they were born, right? You could be someone who knows how to say all the right things all the time. And you could be someone who feels like they never say the right thing at the right time. You can be someone who feels like they have met every expectation that society has placed for you and you can be someone who feels like all you do is miss the mark. That you can be from the wrong side of the tracks or from the suburbs, that you can work with your hands or your mind or your back or your brain, that you don't have to be educated, not at all. You don't need degrees and letters behind your name. You don't have to know all the right people and boast like a carefully curated Instagram feed of all these famous and lovely people whom you know because you're hashtag blessed. You don't have to be conservative, you don't have to be liberal, or in your case, I guess, you're Republican, Democrat, Green Party, right? You don't have to identify with certain political persuasions or ideas on sexuality or science or socioeconomics or foreign policy, right? You can be a social justice warrior or not. Because the thing is, is that none of that moves the meter of your belovedness. None of it does. There's not like there's this line here and God is saying, okay, great, all I'm really waiting for you to do is lose that 20 pounds you've had on since the baby was born and maybe figure out what you want to do with your life and now that you've paid off your debts and now that you don't look at that stuff on the computer anymore, now I finally love you. That was the line, you're finally there, welcome to the table. And it sounds funny when you say it out loud because you know that Jesus isn't like that, but yet some part of our soul just always thinks if, if, If I did this, if I did that, if I had this, if I was like that, then Jesus would love me more. I'd be more beloved, wouldn't I? I'd be more valuable. People would see me as valuable. Your family story could be something that's really beautiful or terrible or like most of us, probably something in between. Right? Maybe you're famous and well-known and influential. That's okay. We like you anyway. Maybe you are someone who is quiet and unknown and you find God as you're folding laundry and making lunches. Maybe you're the only person who remembers grandma's at the old folks' home, even if she doesn't recognize you anymore. You don't have to be a mom. You don't have to be a dad. You don't have to be married. You don't have to be single. You don't have to even want children or have children. You don't have to be someone who is sober or clean. You do not have to give away everything you own and take a vow of poverty, and you don't also have to be super rich or rich at all. Whether you go to church or no church, whether you're someone who's really thankful there's a table of contents in the front of that Bible, or you grew up on the front row, or the only place you manage to talk about Jesus these days is at the pub, that's okay. You have nothing to prove and you have nothing to earn. Any one of those things in your life might change because you are loved. 
right? Might change. You may already even know where God is longing to breathe wholeness and healing and redemption into places in your story. So any one of those things may be up for grabs for you. You may change, you may be transformed because love is transformative in every way. God is always wanting to bring your life more into line with the person that you were meant to be all along, right? Your beliefs, your behavior, your thoughts, your mind, your heart, your body. In so many ways, love is transformative, but it's not a prerequisite or a requirement. It is not behavior modification. You are not earning, and you have nothing to prove because love will redeem you and rescue you and restore you and heal you and embolden you and set you free. You will be on a first-name basis with resurrection. And the thing that I love about this is that the very places of brokenness, the very places that feel like scorched earth and like somebody has dumped salt on them, that is the place where you will encounter God. And you will see that your places of weakness will become your places of healing and wholeness and strength and redemption and testimony. That you will see a reclaiming and you will begin to see that instead of a desert, you are surrounded by an oasis and you have food to feed the next one coming up behind you. I want to pray for all of you before we're finished. Uh, I know the way that I pray may not be the way that you pray. I already know that because you people don't have flags like we do in my church. I didn't even bring mine as a performance. But I hope that there's room and that it's okay for me to pray the way that I pray. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us with delight and abundance and choice and desire for not forgetting us. Thank you that we are learning how to live out of a different narrative, not one of scarcity, but one of the abundance of your love. And that in you, we can live out who we already are because Jesus, we just wanna be with you. Walking in your ways always, headed wherever you are headed, wherever you lead us. I pray that you would fill my friends here with peace that passes all understanding. I pray that they would all be drawn into community that is so rich and so diverse and so deep that we will all disagree and fight and remain in fellowship together anyway. I pray that we would be people who bring food and prayer and laughter and coffee and tears to one another. I pray that we would have our toes stepped on and our feelings hurt because then we would learn to forgive. I pray that each of us would be given the gift of realizing we were wrong about some important things and I pray that we would be people who are quick to seek forgiveness and understanding and make it right when we are the one who has inflicted hurt or brokenness. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that we would have the guts to follow where you're leading us. I pray for freedom to reign. I pray that our lives would become outposts, holy signs along the path, giving a lost world a glimpse of the abundant life that we have found in you. Father, may we begin with our own life-giving lives. I pray for messy living rooms and for late nights and for dirty dishes on the counters and I pray that we would all be given a faithful handful of friends to call when the darkness presses in close to us. 
And I pray that we would be the ones who are quick to show up at the right time for another person, that this community would be an embodiment of the kingdom of God in Chicago. I pray that we would know the truth, that you did not save us and set us free and redeem us simply to use us, that we aren't here to earn our way, that we're not just pew fodder or the cog in someone else's machine, that you are God with us, Emmanuel. Thank you for delighting in us and for walking with us. Jesus, you called us friends. Ha! Huh. May we begin there in friendship with you, the audacity of being friends with you. And may we know personally and intimately in the marrow of our bones that we are loved and we are seen and we are not forgotten. May we proclaim the kingdom of God, your wild, upside down, counterculture, beautiful ways with our hands and our feet and our voice to every soul in our care and in our influence. I pray that we would long for prayer and for the scriptures that we would know what it is to abide in your love. Father, may we keep secrets and may we be the ones who give away our money and who share meals and who make room at whatever table we find ourselves at and also be a people who can sit at night alone outside under the sky and be satisfied. May we hold babies and comfort the dying and let be the voice of knowledge that is tempered with grace and with wisdom and may we be the ones who never despise the day of small things but find you in beautiful obscurity. I pray that no matter what our tool or method is, whether it's preaching or teaching or working in a cubicle or healthcare, or whatever it is, parenting, all those things encompassing our lives, that we would walk in the knowledge of the sacredness and purpose of our callings. I pray for dreams and visions and for the active leading of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would never forget that we are loved, that love is our identity, our calling card and our home. I pray for perseverance and for discipline. I pray for speech that is seasoned with salt. And I pray that when we are bored and we are tired and discouraged and frustrated, when we feel futile and small and ridiculous, that we will remember that we are loved and we are not forgotten. And then we will be receiving new life and new joy and new strength and new courage and new boldness and new faith and new vision and we will return to faithfulness. I pray that we would all have the courage to turn around and face our lives as they are right now. That we could look our life in the eye because this is it. You're not waiting for us out in some unforeseen tomorrow that you're here now. And so whether we open our eyes and we are surrounded by jelly-faced toddlers or by thousands of longing and hungry souls, or if we lift our heads tomorrow to find ourselves in hospitals or back alleys or boardrooms or cubicles or our own kitchens, Jesus, may we know the truth that we are a people of love, by love, for love, through love, in love, called by love, prophesying and embodying love. And I pray that we would keep our eyes open for signs of your presence. You are always up to something. And thank you for the joy of walking with you. It is in your name that we are gathered here together. It is in your name that we will step out those doors into a world that is desperate for you. And in the name of Jesus Christ, bless all of my friends. Go with them. Amen. 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 Bless you all.